Well, hello and welcome to the next episode of Pegasus Radio and the next in the Meet the Boss series. Today, I'm joined by Sonny Johal of Detail, who are a development management company based in Birmingham. Welcome, Sonny. Hi, Paul. Really, really, really glad to be on the show today. Oh, look, really, thank you for joining me. And in fact, Sonny, obviously part of the plan of, of Pegasus Radio is to keep on expanding who we're speaking to. And actually, you're the first to represent an actual development company. So I'm really pleased to have you on board. And I think yeah. it would be interesting to get your perspective in terms of the wider market, the contracting market, the consultancy market, how that all fits together with a developer. So uh, I think that should be you know, useful. Great. No, no, absolutely. Very, very keen to kind of give any sort of perspective uh, that you're after from, a, I suppose, a, a development and an investor's perspective, really. So, yeah, looking forward to the conversation. Perfect. OK. So, Sonny, if we maybe start by just explaining detail as, as a business, maybe, you know, the size of projects you typically get involved in and the kind of projects you typically get involved in. Absolutely. So when people ask me this question, I, I tend to go on a bit of a tangent because we're, a, we're quite a unique and dynamic business in what we do. We cover various disciplines from land acquisition all the way through to construction delivery. Um, we also have the ability to split off on a separate professional services arm and also a construction arm as well. Um, the business has been structured in a way where we are able to um, self-deliver, which can work well and can also be quite difficult at the same time when you've got that sort of, um, okay. amount of labour on your, on your book. So, you know, keeping that workflow going and can be a challenge. Yeah, but being that the uh, the business we are, we're able to almost kind of um, generate that workload through our development and investment arm. To be honest, so at the moment the schemes that we're kind of um, primarily involved with residential base is. Um, I mean, we were a Birmingham-born, I suppose, um, business. We're very much concentrated in the West Midlands. I'm biased towards the West Midlands being a born and bred brummy. I think it's a great area with huge amounts of opportunity. And I won't go into all the more macro sort of um, investment that's, that's already occurring that people will be aware of through government and HST and the rest of it. But what we're seeing as a business is that, you know, all the opportunity isn't just locked in the city centre and the city core. You know, we are starting to see that bleeding through now into more of the suburban suburban areas. We're currently concentrating primarily at the moment in an area called the Black Country, which covers several areas, including Warsaw, Sandwell and Wolverhampton. And we've got schemes ranging from three and a half million GDB all the way up to circa, you know, 15, 20 million GDB at the moment. Currently live with a couple of schemes, which has helped us through 2020, which has been a challenge for a lot of people. So we're very, 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 very fortunate that, um, in fact, this year for us has been a growth year in a very ironic way. But also we've managed to also kind of, you know, really work hard and, and get a really decent pipeline built up for kind of 2021 and also 2022, of which, again, are more residential-based developments, really. We don't just do residential. We can do commercial. We can be able to do mixed use. But at the moment, in terms of kind of sector, this is the residential sector, which we're seeing still, you know, quite a resilient um, level of demand, really, which is um, quite positive. Yeah, okay. Is this residential that you're, you're selling per unit or is it built to rent? What kind of residential projects are you looking at? Yeah, the model's really, uh, really varied. I mean, I'm kind of um, being being from the Argent days. You know, I've, I've been very fortunate to work with some, you know, some really amazing people in the industry. And you know, one of the core values there that's embedded within me now is almost ensuring that we are giving back to the locality in whatever we produce or create. So, what we're tending to do at the moment, we're seeing a very strong investment model from overseas. You know, for the that we're delivering. 
But at the same time, we don't want to be robbing Peter's Pay Paul and, and completely kind of forgetting, you know, the local market of which, you know, where these sort of developments really do thrive when you start, you start to get that community engagement. So the way we set up our residential um, developments is a bit of a hybrid between local and overseas investments, whether that's bulk purchase, whether that's per unit. It's very much dependent on each scheme, Paul, to be honest. We know the areas that we're working in really well. So we've got a general good feeling in terms of, you know, depending on what the project number of units are, who the right buyers will be, you know, whether that is a, a hybrid, whether it's purely overseas or whether it's purely local market. So uh, but we're, we're, we're fortunate again to diversify that exit, you know, should the overseas market kind of take a, take a dip off, you know, in, in the future. We've still got obviously two other options there to work with. So, yeah, so it's a bit of a mixed bag at the moment. Whether that changes in 2021 is yet to be um, kind of seen. I mean, we are, as you said, it's probably more a BTR model that we're creating here. And one would say that just based on historical economics, the kind of um, the rental market may even come even more resilient with, um, you know, what could happen um, with the job sector and all the rest of it. So, um, so, yeah, we're pretty buoyant and optimistic about the residential market, especially in the areas that we're working in as well. Are you seeing, Sonny, do you think that the Midlands and maybe other regions of the UK are benefiting from perhaps investors possibly trying to jump out of the kind of London market which maybe slightly overheated now, do you think? Yeah, I think the London market discussions, I mean, we've been, that's, I mean, with the, other, the other hat that I wear and being primarily and heavily involved with um, the commercial market and, you know, offices and that sort of sector, we've been, we've been talking about London being overheated now for, you know, probably about 24 months, to be honest. We've always seen that big consolidation, you know, with some big corporate occupiers happening over the last, again, 18 to 24 months, PwC being, a, you know, a really key one, then convincing and actually taking the decision to, you know, really kind of put the, um, the emphasis behind that more of a regional hub, one Chamberlain Square in Birmingham. I think everyone has really appreciated since um, what's gone on in the last kind of eight, nine months is how important their own open space is. And, you know, maybe the London scene being in central London in apartments is probably, you know, no longer the kind of the polished uh, dream that people once thought it was. And, and that migration of people year upon year from the southeast to the regional areas has increased and continues to increase, Paul. I think a lot of investors are seeing the fact that, you know, there is opportunity in the Midlands and, and other regions. People have the opportunity to have a bit of a better work-life balance, People have the opportunity to have a little bit more disposable income to enjoy themselves, which helps, you know, that kind of more local economy again in terms of what that retail and commercial off may not look like. So absolutely, I think um, there's definitely a consensus to say that, you know, London isn't the only place you need to be to do well as a business or generally, you know, as a working professional, to be honest. Yeah, no, look, totally agree. I think it's, and you know, maybe I think depending on exactly how the next year unfolds in terms of companies I choose to where people live and work you know there could be even more diversity I think off the back of that so it'll be interesting yeah it's gonna be an interesting year um you know that said I'll be the first to also say if anybody ever tries to write off London then the crackers because obviously London's a unique city so you know and I can already see it coming back actually from a recruitment perspective it's, it's certainly starting to now rear its head again and say you know look you know don't ignore London so yeah I'm, 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 I'm you know and I'm sure you're the same Sonny. nobody's saying London is not going to continue to do well and thrive uh, but it is interesting that hopefully we will get a bit more diversity across the UK and a bit more spreading of the wealth I guess absolutely and I think it's that it's even the name on head there Paul it is that balancing out really you know across UK platform and not being just kind of southeast centric 
which will hopefully you know support the UK as a whole now as well as we come into Brexit discussions, you know, as a, as a place to invest from a global perspective as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. So your view, I guess, is across the Midlands, sunny things will just you know keep on improving. Obviously, HS2. Exactly, like you say, the likes of PwC, HSBC, you know, the other organisations, you know, saying that we're going to set up shop in Birmingham. Your view is the Midlands region is going to keep going strong. And so let's not forget industrial as well, actually. So that in the mix. I mean, you know, e-commerce, the industrial side, I mean, that's one of the sectors that really has come off well, you know, over the last eight, nine months. We've been doing some research again. I mean, we're going to come on to it. The whole COVID thing is and has been, in my view, there's, you know, if you're going to summarise it in one word, it's probably an accelerator on a number of fronts. You know, whether it's the environmental agenda, whether it's from a health and wellbeing perspective, whether it's yes. from a, an industrial development perspective, data centre perspective as well, which you know, which is a rocketing sector and will continue to be. It really has kind of um, you know driven and I suppose broken barriers, yep. you know, which were formerly there and weren't able to be broken previously. You know, it's almost forced demand in certain areas. But you know, as you say, you know, from the West Midlands perspective, we're fortunate that we've got some really big anchor infrastructure schemes, which are really going to help pull the region through the next two or three years. To be honest, we've got some really great regeneration schemes like Paradise. Um, Smithfield, you know, which is in the Digbeth area, which are further supported by, you know, HS um, and all those sorts of schemes. So, um, and, and all of that naturally ripples through, you know, the kind of the wider areas and henceforth why we're seeing those more suburban areas, which are only kind of 10, 15 minutes away on a tram or on train, you know, being a real big opportunity. Great to hear. Great to hear. So I guess switching gears slightly, what's your take on the future of the industry? What do you think? You know, you're absolutely right. I think COVID has accelerated so many things. Um, how do you think maybe COVID and, and just generally the direction we were going even pre-COVID, what changes do you think will happen in the construction industry going forward? I think from a construction perspective, I think there's been a, a real sounding, to be honest, to again look at automation. Yeah not just in kind of um, in back of house areas, but also the way we start to kind of build and deliver buildings, you know, going forward. This might be the catalyst which offsite modular needed, you know, really kind of push forth. Yeah. And I think there's massive kind of um, steps that are being made now. You know, again, we're kind of being pulled back over the last few years. I think, again, the whole environmental agenda has really, really come on the forefront of everyone's mind. Yeah. I think people understood the importance of it, but I think, again, the last 12 months, it really has now pretty dropped, basically. So a real push into kind of, you know, low-carbon materials. All that sort of technology will definitely kind of be taking a very different stride of momentum over the next two or three years. And putting my other hat on, as an investor and developer, we're, who effectively drive some of these projects, Paul, you know, we've got to be absolutely responsible and held accountable on how we bring forth, you know, some of these big developments. Yeah. And if we're not, I suppose, pushing the fact that we want contractors or subcontractors to be doing things in a very certain way, which help contribute towards whether it's net carbon, whether it's, um, you know, how they go around with their, you know, their operations, how they manage waste, all those sorts of, you know, embodied carbon as well, all those sorts of processes which build up to the construction process. Then I think, you know, without that push and that kind of um, top-down direction, the construction companies in the industry are kind of left on their own, really, to kind of do it off their own back, which is a right. So I think there's going to be a, definitely a, a force of collaboration. You're already seeing it through the construction workbook. 
you know, slightly. And there's obviously updated guidance now from the CLC that are coming forward that are starting to kind of, you know, play on these sorts of matters. But yeah, I think it's one of the opportunities that have come out in the last 12 months in terms of hopefully releasing these kind of technologies which were being held back, whether the, yeah. there was a reluctance to push forward on them previously. I think we all now realise whether it's supporting the environmental agenda, whether it's supporting the deficit in housing supply, whether it's yeah, yeah. supporting the even the workforce, you know, from a health and wellbeing perspective, these sort of things really need to uh, you know, move forward not only to support the global kind of constraints which we're all under, but also to attract people into the industry as well. You know, what we're seeing now, I can't remember the stat, but, you know, the millennial generations, those born from 19, I think 1980 onwards, you know, they are going to be 65% of the workforce in the next two or three years. You probably know this better than I do. And, you know, it's fair to say those sorts of individuals are absolutely much more conscious and aware yeah. on, on how their actions impact things on a more macro scale, whether it's you know environmentally driven or health driven as well. So all those considerations have to be brought forward into the forefront of anything that goes forward, whether it's from a business or a development or a construction you know perspective. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think the interesting you kind of alluded to that. I think something the interesting change is that. All the other things that have gone, all the other initiatives that have gone on in previous years is telling the, the construction industry what it needs to do to change. Whereas this is now very much dry, being driven, like you said, the construction playbook, et cetera, has been driven very much by the client is the one who has to set that precedent. If they set a precedent, the industry will follow suit and, and will fall in line. Absolutely. And, and, you know, sometimes we need to be challenged, you know, into what we're asking for. I say we as, as in those who are kind of the investors and, and the developers, because yeah. we don't get it right all the time. We might come across where we're trying to present unrealistic requests. And I think that's where, you know, that collaboration is really important. And that early engagement is really important with the supply chain and manufacturers and suppliers to make sure that actually what we're trying to create here is achievable but achievable over a sustainable time frame as well. It's no good to anyone where all of a sudden pressure of time becomes a key, a key factor on the scheme. And, and that's when you start to see then bad habits creep in, unfortunately. And we can't afford for that to happen going forward. So, Yeah, no, absolutely. And in terms of what do you think you're going to do as a business, Sonny, in terms of how you affect or change the expectations of your supply chain, whether that be you know subcontractors, I guess contracts in some cases, depending on the scheme and or your consultants. Is that something as a client you're going to drive more, if you like, in terms of that change? Absolutely, Paul. I mean, um, you know, one of the things that we're quite proud of is, is how, is how we, I suppose we communicate those values across to the team that we take on, which flow through into the scheme and flow through into the end product. So some of the things that we're working on, and, you know, our journey is very different to um, blue chip developers like your Ballymore and your Argent in that we're still quite an embryonic company, which I think it gives us quite a few trends in that it enables us to be a little bit more agile than those sorts of people and a little bit more flexible and enables us to also probably be a bit bolder on how we do things with probably, you know, due to the fact we've got probably less governance. So one of the things that we always do is it's never a tell sort of um, approach. It's always a kind of, um, I suppose, a committee through curious inquiry with our supply chain to more get feedback from them, Paul, to be honest, and the sort of contractors, because of, you know, any development and any successful project, you're only as good as those partners around you, really. So we understand that, you know, we will have a perspective on things, but equally, we need to be um, acknowledging the perspective from those who are seeing 
very different things from where they sit, to be honest. So yeah, we will be bringing those sorts of approaches and um, I suppose um, kind of ways of working through the business. We already are. And I think, you know, going forward, that's just something that we want to try and build on. Yeah. It's almost evident speaking to you, Sonny, straight away that I get that from you, that that's what you want to do. And I think obviously there's been talk and talk and talk about collaboration, et cetera. But I think hopefully, again, something that COVID has maybe accelerated is a realisation from all elements of the supply chain within construction. If you survive, if your supply chain survive, then you've got a stronger supply chain to help you deliver the projects you need in the future. And maybe let's all work on making sure we all survive and, and maybe less adversarial, you know, less contractual maybe, and just making sure, look, let's all get through this and keep a, a strong supply chain. Absolutely. I mean, I've come, so I started my career off as a labourer. So I've come through the construction. So I was in construction for about 14 years. So I saw some good stuff and I saw some not so good stuff. And I've been on the hard end of, you know, those kind of, um, I suppose, those awkward conversations that finally count. And then, you know, whether it's claims and all the rest of it. And, um, you know, coming to the other side, I suppose, of the table and having that experience that I had, I've been quite fortunate to be able to drive what I'm talking about now through at least some of the schemes that, or some of the projects that I've done on Paradise. So once in one chamber square, phase one, doing it now with one centenary way, which is again, another 120 million building with Sir Robert McAlpine. And it just pays dividends just to, you know, open up that kind of approach where it really is open book. You know, it isn't just, well, we'll hold a bit back. And it takes a lot of doing to take people's shields down because we are, and I say we as a construction industry have been very, I've found very defensive when it comes to trying to work together with, with various parties. And I think there's always this, half full approach where people feel reluctant to really show any vulnerability from their side, if that makes sense. And, you know, with McAlpine, then you can speak to, um, you know, any of their directors there, Mark Bessie being a good one, and I don't mind naming him. Yeah. We've really worked hard to get that sort of kind of um, old school culture out of um, the McAlpine Birmingham team. We've also had a bit of an education from their side, but now it's created a, a really... I don't want it to sound all kind of rosy and, you know, there's fairies and clouds and stars running around because we still have, you know, some hard conversations. But there's an environment within, there's an environment there that's being created now where people are able to turn up and not feel reluctant to put their hand up if they've got a problem or if there's a problem on the table. And that's great, that is, you know, because it's just enabled us to get through so many more, you know, so many, so many of the difficult kind of conversations that sometimes get swept under the carpet and then come out at the very end. We were able to have those conversations with those individuals now face-to-face in a very collaborative and diplomatic way. And um, what that actually does is take the pressure off the guys that are delivering the scheme, you know, because there's not this pent-up kind of tension hovering around because there's an issue here that that isn't being resolved. And I think it's that sort of approach where, you know, we've got to come in as developers and say, look, for this scheme to be successful, everyone has to make a bit of money. As you said, there's no kind of success and there is no positive story for an amazing building developed, whether it gets pre-let and fully occupied, when some person on that chain, whether it's the guy manufacturing the nuts and bolts or the steel connections, feels very, very sore at the end of that scheme and it's hurt his business because that's not good to anyone. So it is an approach where we try and get down and sometimes the main contractors might not like this because we do talk to the tier ones, tier twos, and the tier three subcontractors to ensure that, you know, they're being treated the way we're hopefully treating the main contractor because it all flows down, really. And, um, and it's been working well in paradise. I hope to bring that approach to detail, and we are bringing that approach to detail. 
and just having a very different outlook on how you know schemes can come forward in the truest collaborative way that we all tend to talk about that sounds amazing and, and i hope that's what you you know you continue to push that change in the industry Sonny. well done because i still think there are unfortunately too many maybe old school for want of a better phrase old school organizations who still see this is a very adversarial relationship and until we change this the industry is going to be constantly have this boom and bust cycle where somebody's always almost forced out of business because everyone's trying to yeah you know squeeze the pips out of um, someone in the supply chain Absolutely, absolutely. Good. So, Sonny, one of the things we talked about before we started recording was, you know, your passion about the fact that, you know, people can do anything in the industry and move forward. Do you want to just give us a very potted history about yourself? As you alluded to, you started as a labourer. You ended up working for one of the, you know, most iconic developers at the moment in the UK. Do you want to just kind of give people, as I don't want to kind of go over on too much, but just give them an idea about your career? Absolutely. So, brought up on the basis that, you know, you've got to get to school, you've got to do your A-levels, you've got to go to university, you know, that very regimented kind of career approach. Yeah. When I was about 16, 17, I did okay on my GCSEs, but I got into football, all that sort of stuff. Football took over my life. I didn't do well on my A-levels because I lost interest in education and I was always quite good on my hands. So I thought, well, why not? I wanted to earn money. I also enjoyed the built environment, doing things for either my dad's friends on sites and stuff. So I thought, you know, how free, I'm going to go in the tools and, and learn a couple of trades. So I was on the tools for about four and a half years. One thing that I've been really lucky with, Paul, is I've had some, um, I've had a, I'd say four really, really key individuals who have helped me as I've progressed in my career, helped me move to the next stage, really. And across that whole career path that I've had so far, I've learned very different things from each one of them. When you start off as a labourer, I suppose you can say you have very frank and straight conversations with your foreman. You very quickly have to develop um, a very thick skin and a broad set of shoulders, which is great. You know, yeah. being told to F this and F that became, you know, not unusual to me. So I was very used yeah. to kind of hard line um, approach. But what it did do, working on the tools, it helped me develop a, credit, a, a sense of urgency and a sense of appreciation on what it does take. Yeah. To, um, to truly build. Yeah. I knew for that period, I didn't want to do tools for the rest of my career. So then I started to kind of push forward and managed to get into um, Taylor Woodrow with one of the best contractors in the UK. Did a construction management apprenticeship with them. I stayed with them for about three and a half years because Vinci had taken over. Okay. And then on that journey, I've always done my education in parallel to actually working. So whether it's a HNC initially, then I did my, I suppose, my BSc in construction management. And then I um, had the opportunity to jump ship from Vinci to move to another contractor called Long Cross Construction, who unfortunately are no longer with us in the southeast. And it was that appointment at Long Cross that really did kind of uh, put me in a sink or swim situation. And I'm really so appreciative of the guy that did that because that really did just propel my growth as an individual and as a professional as well. And I think, you know, one of the lessons there for me is unless you're given that chance to grow, it's near impossible. And you find a lot of organizations create this almost, I suppose the word is a very average type of environment where people are able to progress. And, you know, if you're lucky enough to get people who want to pull you up, which is really important, then it does you, it does you well. So I got into Long Cross. I was put in a position about to go, project manager's job, 26, 14 million quid. I was absolutely under, you know, well out of my depth, having to manage a group of 45 to 50 year olds when you're 26, not an easy task to gain their respect. And I did that construction role with Long Cross for about six years, got up to kind of senior contract manager level. 
But I was always very, very, I'm a curious individual at the best of times, but I was always asking the question to myself, where's the money coming from to kind of create these projects? You know, how does that work? Who are the funders? Yeah. You know, how do they make money? No. And I put myself on a master's degree in real estate finance and investment, which gave me the kind of foundation then to move into more the development and investment side of the industry, which then obviously landed me with Argent. And then with Argent for a number of years, five or so years, and it was only in April this year, I uh, decided to take the, uh, the leap of faith to co-partner in a business detail, obviously. But in parallel to that, still keeping a consultancy role where I still am leading one of the buildings on Paradise as well, which has been an absolute great thing for me to be able to achieve. Yeah. It's given me the ability to really create what I'm creating with detail, with Eric and Raj and my partners, but also still having that kind of um, ability to influence things in the industry at a very higher and strategic level on Paradise. So... When I say to people, or when people ask me, or they say to me, oh, I'd never want to be a labourer, I always put them in the, you know, put them, or stop them in their shoes straight away because those four years and four or five years on the tours for me was probably the greatest kind of um, education and grounding probably I got to help me to get to where I am today for sure. Yeah, undoubtedly. I'd even argue, you know, when I, um, you know, just, just think about some of the jobs I did when I was younger, you know, I spent a lot of time working, just going through uni, working in bars. And, and it's amazing how much just the interaction with, with customers yeah. and having to work with them and work out that has probably, you know, been a solid foundation to what I've gone on to do as, as a career as well. So you're absolutely right. You know, your ability to work with all people at all levels, I think, is, uh, you know, if you can get that early in your career and, and understand how to engage with different people, there's got to be real value in that, I think. Yeah, no, most definitely. And I think, you know, how we're seeing now the workforce shifting generationally across the whole board, the skill set, the skill set for people is also shifting, if that makes sense. It's not about every business now, you know, financial capital is important, but human capital is even more important. Absolutely. And um, the skills and the approaches and the perspectives that were being taught in 20th century world are very different to what are required in the 21st century world. And, you know, what we're, what I've certainly learned and continue to learn is that those who have that path to wanting to do really well going forward, their, um, I suppose, their attributes and their traits certainly more be weighted towards emotional intelligence as opposed to, you know. Yeah, 100%. I, was, I had the exact same word on my I'll phrase on my, on my mind then. Yeah, absolutely. It really is. And it's exactly what you said. It, with the technology and tools that we now have to be able to do our jobs, the truest skill set and the truest, you know, and the best people are going to be those who are able to manage, influence, and work with other people, you know, as opposed to the technical and um, yeah, the technical competence on the job itself. And, that, and that's something that I'm certainly you know, still seeing as I progress in my career. Yeah, quite interesting. Another individual I for the podcast, a chap called Ian Higgs, who, uh, who, who heads uh, Bureau for Consultancy. You know, very much said that, that some of the future leaders they're going to be looking for are just individuals who've got this kind of really inbuilt leadership skill in them. And that may not necessarily come from the industry. It may come from somebody outside of the industry, but yet has got that emotional intelligence to be able to bring that to bear, you know, on a good construction project. Absolutely. And I think, you know, if you're a contractor as well, now's the time as well, just to really kind of step back and reflect to see what that next wave of talent looks like within your business. And are they getting that right leadership training because, you know, I do believe, you know, you can make leaders, you know, they're not born, um, but you need to make sure that there's a platform there in place where they are being brought into those strategic conversations, getting that exposure to help prop them and put them in a position when they are ready, 
they're not kind of um, they're not put in a as I was in a sink or swim situation. They're almost doing that leadership job before they get it. If that makes sense. And it's yeah, it's a very different skill set, a much softer skill set than perhaps we've been used to in, in the construction world. And you're absolutely right. You know, coming back to your point about making sure we attract the right people because it is an aging demographic in reality in construction. Yeah. You know, certainly if we uh, you know attract a more diverse and inclusive you know workforce into the industry then it's going to have to be you know we have to shed some of the old school way of working in construction and, and it not be seen as a very masculine environment for example so you need you know if you know attract you know different people females etc into the industry we need to have a more inclusive environment don't we that, that embraces it 100 percent, and you know you can read into all the papers and all the rest of it but it's very clear that the more diverse and inclusive your team is the more chance and outcome you've got on being really really successful and achieving the result you want to be honest there's plenty of research and, and evidence to kind of prove that as it is. So I think you're right, Paul. Getting that right mix of team as well per, for, for each project is really important. And the more perspective you can get on that team, the better. Okay, great. That's me out of all the main questions. So I usually finish now, Sonny, with some more rapid-fire questions. I'll be, I think you've probably answered some of these already, but let's, uh, let's dive in because I think you'll probably add some value still to these. So I know you said you've probably had four kind of key individuals in your career, but... If you can give me one, who would you say has been your best boss and why in your career? Well, I'm going to challenge the word boss because I think the word boss now, it infers for me kind of um, a bit of a dictatorship. I think it kind of gives the impression where a boss will tell you something as opposed to show you something. So I think probably the word I'd use for myself is probably who is the best leader that I've worked under. And, you know, I'd say out of the ones that I have been fortunate to work under, I'd probably say it's Rob, Rob Groves, to be honest, from Argent. You know, he's, um, and I'm still obviously working with him on the Paradise Scheme, but, you know, he's really been great in the sense of um, exposing me to these kind of more softer skills, which, uh, I mean, you can imagine starting off your career in the construction industry as a hard-nosed kind of um, labourer. And the first commercial schemes that I was kind of um, working on was like uh, new build Tesco's retail sector. Yeah, okay. So it's all about speed and it's all about getting things done. So let's just say I had a bit of a trait of being slightly gung-ho. <laughs> okay. Had to be reined back, which it, which has now. But I think the facts and the reasons why I probably say Rob is because um, I think one of the things that he did help me understand is that and it's probably the importance of basically working with others, but bringing others along the journey with you and not leaving them behind. And um, I think if you can master that sort of approach, you automatically then get an attraction of people wanting to work with you and people will listen to you and you will be able to influence things in a more efficient way than you would do if you were to do it by force. And I think that it'd probably be that, I suppose, life lesson for me, which I've learned the most, probably from my Argent days, which has helped me, again, deliver the schemes that I've delivered and um, kind of um, secure the opportunities that I'm securing, to be honest. So, uh, so yeah. Oh, that's a great answer. What's the best piece of career advice you've ever heard or been given? I've had some pretty bad ones. So, uh, so the good one, so I suppose a good one, there's been lots, there's been lots. And again, it's very much, you know, tailored to what I was discussing previously. But in the truest sense, being, I suppose, a leader, it's not an easy job and it's not for everyone. You've got to have a very high degree of humility. I think one of the things that I, again, which I was, I can't remember who told it me, but it's kind of what you want for yourself, what for others, very simply. And if you can achieve that, then um, again, you have and start to create an environment where people aren't coming in 
with a self-interest to your team. People are coming in to help the guy next to him or the girl next to him, next to her, whether they're working side by side, whether they're, you know, their line manager, you know, role definition becomes a non-matter. Titles become a non-matter. And actually, it's all about a common goal. And, you know, if you can kind of have that approach, which creates an environment where everyone can feel safe, then again, that brings an enormous amount of um, positive, I suppose, vibrancy to, to what that team is actually experiencing. And, you know, as well as I do, Paul, you know, we spend 90,000 hours of our life in work. So, and the way COVID has driven things now, working and living, well, what's the difference? We carry these mobile devices, which are glued to our hands. We're almost kind of now getting into a point where we're addicted to reply to emails and notifications as soon as they come up. So if you can create an environment at work, which is one of, you know, helping get helping and giving as opposed to taking and being, you know, self-orientated, then what you're actually doing is you're creating that balance for the individuals that you're working for or working with. They become happier. They become more productive. And um, they actually want to do more for you as well than what you're asking them to do. No, again, spot on answer. That's brilliant, Sonny. Again, you may have already answered this one already, but yeah, so what is your worst piece of career advice you ever heard? So, I mean, I'm I'm probably going to say this on the basis of the career that I've had, and I was always very kind of taught, very much taught and driven to say education and qualifications are your be-all and end-all. I'd like to say I've probably proven that isn't the case. I think there's plenty of strands so the advice, the worst advice, it's probably not the worst advice, but education and qualifications aren't the most important thing. If you're sitting there listening to this, thinking, I haven't got a degree, okay, I haven't got H&C, I haven't got BTEC, I haven't got MVQs, that's all fine. And yes, you need to be able to demonstrate technical competence, but you can have someone who's really intelligent, technically brilliant, but at the same time lacks resilience, adaption, and also ambition and those sorts of individuals, even though they're really talented, they almost reach a plateau because they've got these limiting beliefs. And, you know, if you were to say to me, if you wanted to hire someone, what are the traits that individual, what would the traits um, be for that individual? Then for me, it's got to be their drive, their desire, their attitude, their resilience, and also just their belief to wanting to do well. Because I think you can teach people skills You know, you can help train people, but if they've got those embedded core values where they really want to do and they're really committed to kind of changing themselves and doing better, then I think it's those sorts of individuals that you want. And then the qualifications and uh, and education will come even easier to those individuals because they really want it as opposed to the way around. So education and qualification, very important, but not the most important. Your attitude and your approach to how you do things will certainly put you in better stead because then, you know, your potential is limitless, really. I would agree with all that. I think I think qualifications sometimes provide the stepping stone, which maybe you wouldn't have without the qualification. You know, going back to you joining Argent, you know, maybe you may not have got there without the MSC as something to flag to them. But equally, you can probably think of individuals who've got a string of qualifications after their name as long as their arm, who actually are one-dimensional characters. Yeah. It will always be on the tool, so to speak, <laughs> rather than ever reaching those higher echelons of management because they don't have the right people skills. Absolutely. And, you know, look, some people enjoy doing the role that they do and they want to stay doing the role that they do. You know, and that's fine as well. That's okay. Yeah. But if you have got something, you know, between your teeth and you really do want to, I hate using the word or the phrase through the ranks, but, you know, progress yourself, I suppose, from a development perspective, then I think, yeah, just um, 
if you can keep your head straight, because now how we deal with our mind is so important as well with the etchanons of information that gets thrown to us in this current day and age. Keeping yourself focused is really going to be um, the most important thing for you. No, absolutely. Probably brings us nicely on to the, last, the very last question. What's the best business book you've ever read? Or it could be a podcast you listen to. What, what would you say is the best thing that's probably informed your career to date? Okay, so, I mean, I could, we could spend another two hours talking about this. It's about <laughs> loads. But if there's one, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose a book. That book was actually introduced to myself by um, Nick Searle, who's managing partner now of Arjun. And it's a book called How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. And um, it's just an absolute yep. book which has opened doors, really, for me. And you're looking at your face and you're nodding. And I'm guessing you've probably read it yourself. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it's a great book. And there's also another one of his, actually, I'm blanking on the name of. There's two. There's another one I should suggest you reading as well, if you like that one. There's two that are great. And, you know, there's so many lessons that come out of that book in terms of, you know, which, which really do resonate with, uh, especially with myself. It touches up. I mean, he was ahead of his time. We now call this emotional intelligence. It's all, the book already talks about that. I don't know how old that book is, but I'm guessing... Old, but it's still relevant, isn't it? Yeah, very, very relevant. Yeah. And um, there's one particular quote within that book that's always resonated with me, and it, it goes like, you can make more friends in two months by becoming interested in other people than you can make in two years by trying to get other people to be interested in you. Yeah, spot on. Just summarises the kind of approach that we all need to be taking, you know, in the future years, really. Sonny, that's been absolutely fantastic. I'm out of questions now. Is there anything you want to add to close that maybe you don't feel we've covered? No, I think if I'm going to leave any people with anything, I think uh, it's just probably to, to consider that, you know, if you can kind of get yourself in a position where your actions either inspire people to do more or, you know, help people enjoy what they do and also help people understand why they're doing it. Then I think, you know, that's the path on creating a really great team. And uh, that's a journey that we're on at Detail. That's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, without without trying to give you a big head, Sonny, I can, I can see you are one of the ones who's going to be the future of the industry because you, you've built in so much sense today. I've been absolutely spot on. I think a lot of people will get a lot out of this one. I really enjoyed the conversation. Good. No, it's always nice to, you know, help communicate ideas and kind of philosophies and perspectives on a wider platform, which sometimes can, you know, can just get stuck in uh, on a single project, really. So um, thank you for enabling me to do that. Really appreciate it. No, look, my absolute pleasure. Thank you for being part of it, Sonny. Have a great uh, remainder of the week. Yeah, you too, Paul. Thanks very much. Cheers. Thanks, Sonny. Bye. Yeah.